Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books interview podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Blackestons fish owl is the world's largest living species of owl, with larger females of the species weighing as much as 10 pounds. It lives in the Russian Far East and Northern Japan. It is also endangered. Global populations are estimated to be only around 1,500 owls in total. The story of one conservationist's efforts to save these owls is told in Owls of the Eastern Ice, a quest to find and save the world's largest owl, the first book by Jonathan Slatt. The book traces Jonathan's many trips to the territory of Primorye in the, Ru- in the Russian Far East as part of his research into where the fish owls live and hunt. In the Russian winter, Jonathan and his Russian compatriots survey the forests, listen for fish owl duets, investigate nests, and capture owls in an attempt to learn more about these creatures. Jonathan is the Russia and Northeast Asia coordinator for the Wildlife Conservation Society, where he manages research projects on endangered species and coordinates avian conservation activities along the East Asia-Australasian flyway from the Arctic to the tropics. Owls of the Eastern Ice has won widespread acclaim, including being longlisted for the National Book Award for Nonfiction and being named one of the New York Times' 100 Most Notable Books of 2020. Today, Jonathan and I will discuss his research project, The Blackestons Fish Owl, and how we turned this whole thing into a book. We'll delve a little deeper into what the book suggests about how we work together to protect endangered populations. So, Jonathan, let's perhaps start with the star of the book the Blackestons fish owl. Um, I've seen photos of it. It looks like a real beefy-looking bird. Uh, what's make this, what makes this owl so interesting, in your view? Well, hi, Nicholas. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's, well, the Blackestons fish owl is it's almost an improbable bird. I mean, it's this just enormous thing, right? They stand at two and a half feet tall. They have these six-foot wingspans, and and as you mentioned, they weigh up to and exceeding uh, 10 10 pounds. And um, what, for me, is most fascinating about them is that these are aquatic prey specialists, right? They eat fish, they eat frogs, they eat lamprey, yet they live in a part of the world uh, where most of the waterways freeze for for months on end. So here's this non-migratory species that requires uh, a food source that's, that's often locked under ice. And they live in these really remote parts of the world, these uh, very hard to reach river valleys. And, uh, and they're just, um, and th- I just find them uh, completely compelling as a result. I mean, you note, you note in the book that, that one thing that makes them very different is that they tend to hunt by, I think, it, I think it's by sight as opposed to by sound, like normal owls do. Yeah, that they hunt. There's, there's a couple adaptations that these birds lack that are common among other owl species. Uh, one of those, like you just mentioned, is, is, um, they, uh, is sound. They don't really have as defined facial discs as other owl species, which is a feather pattern that channels sound directly to their ear holes. And so I do think that these owls uh, use sight much more than most other owls. They'll, they'll sit on a riverbank and watch, uh, watch the shallow water, look for a fish to swim by, and really key in on the ripple from, uh, from that fish, and then jump in. And they also lack silent flight that most owls have. Um, they have these, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they lack uh, a, a, um, a feather adaptation that most owls have that help their wings uh, move silently, push silently through the air. 
So you can really hear one of these birds flying by on, on a quiet night, which is pretty remarkable for an owl species. So, so what are you actually researching as, as, as part of this project? So what, what's actually taking you to, to the Russian Far East? Well, when this project started, and it was conceived in 2005, and um, it started in 2006, and what, what, uh, the period in the book is really uh, 2006 to 2010, which was my, my PhD project at, at the University of Minnesota. And really, we were looking for baseline information about these birds. We knew that after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was this uh, accelerated push of uh, natural resource extraction from northern Primoria, where, where, where these owls live. And But there was no idea how all these new roads, how the logging, how the extra fishing, how these, how these uh, um, activities were impacting the owls. And so our plan, you're working with... Uh, uh, two Russian ornithologists, Sergei Sormich and Sergei Avdiyuk, was really to understand how the owls were using the landscape and how we might be able um, to find a, a, a good balance between the needs of the owls and the needs of people uh, in these forests. And I think you talk about, you have to actually come up, come up with new techniques to get the data you were looking for. I think you're one of the first ones to actually capture um, capture a fish owl. Right. Well, these, these birds, there's a small population of these birds in Japan, fewer than, fewer than 200 individuals. And they hadn't, uh, adults hadn't really been captured there. Uh, young birds have been captured at the nest, but there was some concern in Japan about, uh, you know, captures are inherently dangerous, right? Birds have hollow bones. They're very fragile. And there was a lot of worry that any kind of captures might, of an adult might, hurt the bird and then boom, instead of having, you know, 200, you have 199. And that's, that's a real problem. Uh, and so, right. Like we, we uh, went into the forest with a couple ideas on how to catch these birds, but not really knowing how to do it. And honestly, it, it, it was a couple pretty hard months, um, you know, living in tents and not catching birds before we finally figured out um, a good combination of, of, uh, of traps. So let's let's actually talk about the the timeline between when you go on this research project and, and writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe you start in two thousand six, and you're and you're there for several years after that. Correct. And then now, a decade later, if not more, you've you've now written this book. What what's kind of the 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 timeline between you starting this project and and then writing Owls of the Eastern Ice? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I uh, so uh, yeah, as, as as I said a minute ago, uh, the Activities in the book are 2006 to 2010, but you know, every year since then, like, I've, I've continued to collaborate with both the Sergeys uh, to do this work. So we're still doing this work every year. And the book itself really formed from my, my field journals from, uh, from, those re- from those research trips, 2006 to 2010, where you know, I, I, I speak Russian. I'd been going to the Russian Far East since, since 1995. Uh, and I, I'd lived there in the Peace Corps for three years prior to this. So I was accustomed to, to life over there and using the language and, and you know, Russian social customs. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm living in this truck uh, with you know, two to four other individuals. You know, you know, this truck that's in the middle of winter parked next to a frozen, parked next to a frozen river. And um, it's... Uh, it's difficult to be kind of immersed so deeply in everything Russian. So I, I take a little bit of time each day to sit down, uh, you know, put an earplug, sit in the corner of this, of this big truck and just write down my, my thoughts of the day. Um, and 
it was really just a few, uh, 2016 or so, um, you know, people have been bugging me for, for years to, to, to write more about my experiences. And I finally felt that I had the time. I, I, I tried, translated a, um, a book, um, a Russian book, um, called Across the Usuri Cry. Uh, that's a, it's a book that takes place in uh, the uh, turn of the you know hundred years ago, also in Primoria. And I really enjoyed the experience. I'm like, well, you know, if I can translate a book, maybe maybe I can write a book. And so I took my initial field notes, you know, stuck them all together, and that ended up with being about forty pages of text. Then I just expanded from that, and really the book kind of wrote itself in in about six months uh, after that point. Yeah, because I because I was wondering as I was reading the book. I mean, what I realized is the the time frame this was happening. Um, the descriptions of of what you're doing are so vivid, um, and I was amazed that in some ways I can I, I I could barely write something on what I'd done maybe you know two three years ago, but all the way back in 2006 2010. Um, it's I guess. So yeah, I, I guess I guess so 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 you have all you have all these notes from your field journals and then you you write them up um i guess what was it like to revisit some of these things you know so many so many years later were there things that 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 you thought you'd remember and turned out on at the time you thought something completely different sure i mean it, it was really fun to, uh, to revisit this this period uh and i also i took a lot of photographs just as you know this was a, a phd project i was documenting everything so you know, i'd walk into a hunter's cabin and i'd take a picture of it I'd, I'd walk to a fish owl nest tree and I'd take a picture of it. And so as a result, so as I was, you know, kind of uh, reminding myself of, of what, uh, of how things happened and what things looked like, I could then just access my, my database of photographs. So I'd, I'd walk into, you know, my notes say, okay, I went to Volva's cabin and then, um, and I have the date there. So I, I went to my, uh, my database of photos and boom, there's a picture of Volva's cabin so that I can describe it perfectly you know, as it was just by looking at, looking at the photos. So I didn't, have to rely on memory um, as much. I was I was really able to just remind myself of how things were. So so we've gone this long in the interview, and I and I haven't asked yet. So what's actually what's actually this territory, Primoria, in the Russian Far East? What's it actually like in terms of the natural landscape and in terms of the people that live there? Yeah, it's it's a really remarkable place, uh, and one of the one of my goals of writing this book was not not just to you know shed some light on Blackiston's fish owls, but also to shed some light on this really remarkable corner of the world. I mean, it's this little sliver of Russia. It's only about one percent of Russia's total territory, and it hooks around Manchuria. So it's it borders uh, China, it borders DPRK, and it and it, it borders the uh, Sea of Japan or the or the EC. And it's it's very mountainous. It's uh, largely defined by the Sikhateyalin uh, mountains. There's a, a bit of a lowland around um, around Lake Hanka, which is this four thousand square kilometer lake. That's a really important place for migratory birds. But most of the landscape is mountainous, and there are very few people there. There's about uh, two million people total, half of whom are in the capital city of Vladivostok, down by down in the south. And then a few other cities kind of down there. But as the further north you go, uh, the fewer people there are. And in uh, Ternay County, which is um, where I work and where most of the book takes place, I mean, the population is 10,000 people over 20,000 square kilometers. And as far as the wildlife uh, goes, it's this, it's sort of a, uh, it's a zone where, um, where uh, the boreal ecosystem and the subtropical ecosystem kind of blend in this temperate forest. So you have things like 
like brown bears and and lynx, you know, Eurasian lynx. So in these northern species, sharing the same forest with subtropical animals like like Amur tigers and Amur leopards and Asiatic black bears. So it's a, it's a just a remarkable place. And so the so the owls are only part of your story. I mean, a lot of the book is taken up with with um, how you deal with the people you meet in Russia. You know, your fellow researchers. But also, you know, hunters, loggers, sailors, those living in lodges and cabins deep in the forest. Um, could you tell me more about what it was like to work with these people? And also, could, I mean, if there are any, if there are any stories in the book you'd like to you'd like to mention here, that that'd be great too. Yeah, and so um, it is. You know, one one thing I've liked from some of the reviews I've seen of the book is one person will say, "Oh, this is a book about owls," and someone else will say, "No, no, no, this is a book about people." Uh, and so I like that because I was trying to I, I was trying to balance not just I don't want to just write a book about the owls. I want to talk about field research. I want to talk about the people in the place. And so I do sp- spend a lot of time focusing on on what people uh, individuals I meet, who they are, what they do, you know, their their outlooks on um, on, on life. Uh, and it's a uh, it was interesting, you know, going into um, you know, as a foreigner. You know, getting in a truck with with a couple of Russians and then driving up to some of these really remote hunting and fishing villages, and then you know telling people we're there to look for owls. Uh, it's it's absolutely bizarre for these for these people. You know, a, a lot of these, you know, I'm talking villages with you know, a few hundred people in them where there's uh, in many cases there's not a lot of stable employment. So. People get their food from uh, from the from the from the rivers, from the ocean. They get fish. They they go into the forest for for deer, for boar. Uh, everyone has gardens, so everyone has potatoes and uh, and tomatoes and, and cucumbers and all these other vegetables. And so they really live live off the land. Uh, and so for for people to show up and say that their job is to look for owls is just absolutely bizarre. It seems like a waste of time, and in some cases. People assume that there's some uh, ulterior motive that you know there, there's a reason why we're there. Like we're somehow making money off of this, and we're not doing it just for conservation. Um, and so it, it, it took a while uh, and it, um, to, I guess, explain you know to really convey that we have uh, you know, good good motives going to these areas. Um, and in, in some cases, people you know uh, Sergei. Sergei of the Yukon, I have been going to these places uh, for almost, you know, for more than fifteen years now, uh, and to this day, some people still think that we uh, that we're you know catching owls and selling them to zoos or something. Um, I noticed, at least at the very beginning of the book, when you first meet a lot of these people, it sounds like they try to get you to drink a lot of vodka and then tell you lots of have have you tell them lots of stories about what it's like overseas. But of course, they do this to the to the Russians as well, not just not just you. Yeah, uh, it's you know I think there's there's a lot of social customs uh, revolving around drinking in in Russia and right so at the at the start of the book you know we uh, you know fly by helicopter into this village where at the time in 2006 you couldn't get to by road you could only really you could get there by boat snowmobile or or helicopter and um, you know it was we you know the 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 locals there viewed us as as the evening's entertainment like it's it's you know it's almost like a you know then the circus comes to town or or the ballet it's like oh there's there's new people um so we were indeed um given uh large amounts of alcohol to to consume with with these people and and i think 
I, I was hurriedly looking up the, the name of the person who, who, whose cabin you stay in for most of the, at, le- at least in, I think, the, your, your second or third year in Russia, um, Anat- Anatoly. And he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting figure. You know, he lives on his own. You imply that there might have been something that he had done in his past that drove him to live alone. Um, he has many strange ideas about history and what goes on in the forest. But he's also he's also not. I mean, he seems very happy to have all of you there. He's very happy to look after you, so he's not a hermit, at least in that respect. Um, and so it's just, I guess, it's, he's just, to me reading the book. He's one of the most um, fascinating and, and interesting characters that 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 you meet. I guess if you could talk a bit more about him and other characters like that, who just are just interesting people you meet on your journey through the Russian Far East. Yeah, I mean, Anatoly was just a, just a lovely person. Uh, you know, we we uh, in, in our first year of trying to catch owls. You know, Sergey and I were living in tents. It was getting to minus thirty at night sometimes, and it was just just miserable because we weren't catching birds, uh, and we were cold all the time, and we weren't sleeping well. And um, Sergey just ran into this guy, Anatoly, in the woods, um, and they got to talking. And Anatoly says, "Hey, you know, I've got I, I've got a warm place to sleep. Come come live with me while you're trying to catch your birds." And so he did. And so he lived in a in an abandoned hydroelectric station. There was this um, power plant that uh, provided the village of Ternay with electricity during the Second World War, and it had been abandoned for for decades. And so he had sort of occupied the the main structure there. Uh, and yeah, and so you know, one one thing that I've learned from again, I've been going to Russia well to the Far East since ninety five to to Russia since ninety two. I don't ask a lot of questions. I think that's, you know, people get suspicious when you start asking questions. So I just, I let a lot of things slide. And so there's, there are so many things that I wanted to know about Anatoly that I just didn't feel comfortable asking. But over the years, uh, because you're right, we spent several seasons uh, working um, out of his cabin. And even after the book ends, I I would still go, I would still go back and, and visit Anatoly. There are more things that I learned about him. And it, it did seem that he, uh, he'd been living alone in the forest for about a decade. Uh, it, it appeared that he had um, gotten into some kind of bad business deal in, in Vladivostok in the, in the 1990s, which, you know, Russia in the 1990s was, there was a lot of, there were a lot of bad business deals. And so he essentially feared for his life. And so he, he fled to the forest and he wasn't particularly um, well adapted to forest life. I mean, he didn't, he didn't hunt, um, he didn't really fish. I mean, he did a little bit, but not really. Uh, he made himself some skis in winter that were uh, essentially made out of two by fours. And, you know, <laughs> two by fours don't make great skis. Uh, so he really just kind of hunkered down and hibernated in winter. Um, and then in, in the warm months, he would, he'd throw some nets and, and get some, catch some fish and sell those by the road, or he'd join some, some firewood team and make a little money doing that. But mostly he just lived by himself. And right. He had, he had these, um, beliefs about the region. He felt that he was drawn there uh, to, you know, the spirit of, of, of the nearby mountain. And he was, he was convinced that the mountain was hollow and that there were men in white robes inside uh, guarding a spring of, of, uh, of special water. And he just needed to, to dig down 10 or 12 meters to, to reach them. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting person to, to live with because, you know, he would tell us about these things and tell us about how you could teleport things um, on and off the mountain. Uh, but 
yeah, I mean, he he would uh, we uh, he made us food. Um, he was he helped in some of our research and was just a just a good person. Another a memorable uh, character for me uh, from early on in the book is a, is a guy named Labada, who was this this hunter in in this village of Agzu, where where I flew into by helicopter. Uh, he was a he's just just this big bear of a man, a huge you know big big beard. Uh, he had this this big big coat that looked like he had maybe made himself. It, it didn't look it did not look store bought. Um, and he's considered the the best hunter in Agzu. You know, d- despite having only one arm, um, and I never learned how he lost his arm. Uh, so I had I had a, a very brief encounter with him where you know he he asks me if I hunt or I fish, and I, I said that I didn't, and he, he basically then said, you know, well, what 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 are you doing in Agzu? And then um, left, and after that, he didn't even look at me because as a as not a hunter and not a fisherman, I was essentially not not worth his time, uh, and. It, that was a encounter that certainly stung, um, but that's just um, you know every, everyone in in, a, in that type of village. If you're you're either a hunter or you're worthless. Oh, is this is this the guy in the beginning of the book who shows up and slams beers on the counter and then brusquely asks who, what you're doing there? Exactly, this, exactly, right. Yeah. So he. Yeah, I, I now yes, I, I remember this character in the book now. Um, but but I think now 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 we've talked a lot about the people. Maybe let's go back to talking about the owls, um, at least briefly before we before we maybe talk more broadly about about conservation. Um, I know it's a I know it's a bit of a cliche to kind of attribute you know at least human characteristics or you know potentially like re- recognizably human characteristics onto animals. But if you had to kind of describe the the personality of the fish owls, kind of how they how they care for their young, how they hunt, how they how they pair up uh, males and females. What kinds of characteristics or or descriptors would you use? Yeah, so the you know with owls again, people think of owls or many people do anyway as uh, very sleek and very stealthy and uh, just very um, uh, cryptic. And I, I would say that you know the fish owl that, that that does not describe a fish owl. I, these things are you know they're I described them at one point as floppy goblins. You know they are uh, you know because they're so big they they just can't go from point A to point B without making a lot of noise. Uh, I was you know at one point I'm sitting underneath a nest tree uh, in in a, in, a, in a blind, and every time that one of the adults flies up to the nest tree, you know. You know, branches are, are are land, you know, are are hitting the top of my blind because they're just breaking branches as they fly in and out. Um, so yeah, I, I, I you know, they're they're disheveled, they're unkempt, um, and I find that endearing. You know, I'm not particularly stealthy in the woods myself. You know, I like to. You know, people think, oh, you know, field researcher, you know, that guy must must be great. Like, you know, I fall in rivers all the time. I get I get stuck in mud, uh, and so I I feel like a kinship with with fish owls as a, as a result of that, uh, they, they are, uh, uh, the, the, the ecology and the biology of these birds is, is pretty interesting. Um, they tend to, uh, breed only every other year. So, you know, most birds breed every year, not, not these guys. They, it's, it's every second year and they tend to have, um, lay two eggs, maybe have just one chick and that chick will stay with its parents for about a year and a half, which is an exceptionally long period. Usually, 
you know, a bird hatches, it leaves the nest, it might hang around for for a month or two or three, and then they're gone. They go off to find their own territories. Young fish shells stay around for a very long time. And I think that's that reflects how difficult it is to be a fish-eating owl in a part of the world where everything freezes. I think it's not, you know, another owl can, you know, leave its leave its home and, you know, catch a catch a mouse in any forest. Uh, but fish owls need to really find parts of the river that don't freeze and um, stick around those areas in, in, in a winter. Yeah. I'm your, your note about how, how, how the fish owls may be not the most, um, let's say graceful of creatures. I'm reminded mm-hmm. of, of, of you, you, you quote one of the, I forget exactly who it was, but one of the, um, your, 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 your fellow Russian researchers who says the first time they see one of these fish owls is when they're kind of, hork down a frog yeah. it's not the most <laughs> regal of sights right um but i think i'd like here to shift maybe more to talk about conservation um and kind of maybe attitudes towards conservation i think sometimes you know we we think about conservation as being in conflict with rural life you know i'm thinking of how you know farmers and ranchers are often strongly opposed to the reintroduction of wolves or coyotes and i think actually in the context of, of the Russian Far East, there were concerns about about tigers in the area, um, you know, fear around tiger attacks. I, I guess, you know, is is this is this tension? Is this something you saw during your research, or is this kind of idea uh, an oversimplification? Yeah, well, I mean, first, I, I think that um, you're talking about a urban versus rural divide. I mean, in, in, uh, with respect to conservation, you know. Mm-hmm. Some of that, I believe, you know, sure, I think there's some of that, but you know, also look at, you know, the at in the highest levels of the government in the United States right now, for example, they're very anti-conservation. So it's not just a urban-rural thing. Uh, I will say, with in in Russia, in the Russian Far East, uh, in some of these small villages, there are, or in Primorye in general, uh, with tigers, there does seem to be a lot of support for them in big cities like Vladivostok, and less support for them. <clears throat> in in smaller areas and that is because of you know how people in these small villages do rely on the land and i mentioned this earlier how people go to the forests for for deer and for boar to put on their on, on their tables and there's a, a largely a misconception that tigers are competitors for for these same uh for these same animals so if it, if there's a tiger there and it gets a deer that's a deer that i can't feed my family with um and that's a, that's 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 a problem uh, with, with species like fish owls. People care about them less, or just don't notice them as much because there isn't that a perception of a, of a direct conflict. It's just you know it's a bird that you know flushes at 100, 150 meters. So even if uh, you know, most people don't ever see one, if they do, it's it's this little thing flying, or it's this big thing flying away. Um, it's you know eating relatively small fish in in winter. So people just don't really care about them as much. I mean, there are, uh, there's, there's certainly just like anywhere, there's a conservation ethic among many hunters. Uh, people understand the value of, of sustainable resource use. Um, but there are then people who, who don't care. But also I think it seems like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to, to your, in, with the interactions with loggers you talk about in, 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 in your book, um, and the loggers, at least regarding the fish owl, seem to be. I guess it's it seems easier than you'd expect to convince them to, 
to take to take these measures seriously. I guess that is that because you know again they're not they're not really in competition. I think you note that the trees the fish owls live in tend to not be very useful for for logging purposes. Yeah, and the, the logging uh, example is, is I think pretty unique to the area. Um, I uh, so there's one logging group that that we that I still work with over there um, that employs. Uh, it's based in this village of Amgu that I go to a bunch in the book, and uh, you know that the logging company that's based there employs you know most of the able-bodied men in that town, and uh, the person who runs the the, uh, the company was born there. Um, he he has hunting lands right near right near Amgu. You know he 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 fishes as well, and so you know he he sees the impact that his that his company that his the, the you know, logging roads that he is he's building, he sees the impact that that's having on the um, on the wildlife in general, um, and so when you have someone who has a vested interest in the landscape, it's it's much easier to uh, get them on board with something like conservation. When you say like when you when you propose solutions that benefit that uh, the landscape, but then also don't impact his uh, his bottom line. Um, I want to talk about potential threats to the to the fish owl population. I mean, obviously, the the big question is um, is climate change going to affect the fish owl population? And I guess what what are some of the other other things that threaten this population? Yeah. So, uh, cl- climate change is it's a huge problem everywhere, right? And I, I you know, there are you know the conservation mitigations that that I propose in in the book and things that I'm uh, implementing now as I continue to work with this species, you know, that, that doesn't, that, you know, I I can't touch climate change with that. Uh, The issues that I'm worried about with climate change are, there's several. One is uh, increased weather events, right? That we've had, there was a typhoon, um, Lion Rock in, I believe it's 2015. I mentioned this right right at the end of the book that just flattened um, a large swath of pretty important fish owl habitat. And in one case, you know, a river uh, jumped its bank and just com- you know, completely obliterated the old growth forest patch that, that some owls were nesting in. And, you know, with climate change, we have an increase in these, in these weather events. And that's, you know, I can't do anything about that. Um, another issue that I'm very worried about is, uh, is uh, timing of reproduction. So in spring, they eat a lot of frogs, the fish owls do. They switch from fish they were eating all winter to frogs. And I think part of that has to do with their, their breeding cycle. So a female is sitting on the nest in early March. Uh, the, the chick is born about a, a chick or two are born about a month later. And right when this little, this little sack of potatoes, this little nestling, or it's not little anymore, is, is sitting in the nest begging for food, needs all this energy. That's the exact time that the forest is full of these ephemeral ponds and just you know, thousands upon thousands of frogs. And so the parents just bring frog after frog after frog after frog to the nest, feeding this this hungry little bird. And you know, frogs are very sensitive to climate change. You know, if if the weather uh, uh, changes a little bit, and you know, it, it becomes uh, warmer later in the year or, or earlier in the year, the frogs will respond to that, and they won't emerge. You know, fish owls they can't respond that quickly, and I'm worried that you know the frogs might come out earlier or later. Meanwhile, the fish owls are still nesting, producing chicks, and have this hungry bird at the same time. There might be a, a, a mismatch um, between when um, the frogs are available and when the, the fish owls need to be fed. 
and fish elves might die, these chicks, and there might not be reproduction. There might not be new birds entering the population. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. So I, I think for my, for my last question, this is literally just one line in your conclusion. Um, but I think given, given the fact that, that some of our listeners are based in Asia, I think it's worth asking, you note the need for greater regional cooperation kind of throughout Asia, such as between, you know, between the, the Far East and Southeast Asia when it comes to avian conservation. Um, what are the sorts of things that you see are missing? Well, I mean, the, there are groups uh, doing this now. So for example, the East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership is a, it's, it's a voluntary partnership of, of uh, Asian governments, of, of NGOs, of, uh, of, of corporations who are looking at conservation across this broad scale and trying to find where there are gaps and how regional partners can, can, can meet, match, uh, fulfill some of those gaps. And, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty good actually, because, you know, you, if you've got, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a bird breeding in the Arctic, for example, and you can, you can put all your energy in, into protecting that landscape. If you're not addressing what happens to these birds on migration, if you're not addressing what happens to these birds when they're wintering in Southeast Asia, then none of it matters. You really need to approach all this at once. Um, and so groups like the East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership, um, are doing that. They're tailoring the, um, the response to, to different threats, uh, based on, uh, what, where the threats are geographically, and then also the ability of partners in those areas to respond to those threats. So I think uh, with that, that ends our interview with Jonathan Slatt, author of uh, author of Owls of the Eastern Ice, A Quest to Find and Save the World's Largest Owl. Um, I guess two final questions, Jonathan. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, where can people find your work, academic or otherwise? And uh, what's next for you? Well, um, I, I, have a, I have a website, jonathanslat.com, that has updates on, on what I'm doing. Um, uh, the, the book itself can be purchased throughout um, good bookshops in the, in the UK, and it's also in, uh, for sale in Australia now, I believe. Uh, and what's next is, you know, I, I keep plugging away with the owls a little bit. It's about 5% of my job now, but every year, you know, the Sergeys and I write grants and, and get out to do a little bit of work. Um, and a big push for me now is this this work in um, in Asia, trying to coordinate the work that specifically the Wildlife Conservation Society does throughout the flyway, but then also you know, helping fill some of the gaps um, in the initiatives by groups like the East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. You can follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas.